for you, kick down doors for you, blow by these other trains on the track for you. Bears thinking this rallies tap, picture that with a Kodak Instamatic. We don't get down like that, lay our game down quite flat. Five thou on the ticker, oh you like that. Big stats, big stocks, stacking big stacks, sit back, grab a seat with a six pack, crack one open and taste that, chase it with Patron. Make yourself at home, it's not a paradox, it's a syndrome, a psychological puzzle that is well known. When markets make new highs, we tend to theorize that the good times never last, the best is surely past. We worry that the future leads straight into a crash. It's our animal spirit sending signals of distress. That's why we ride the smart car on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. That's right, Sly. Higher highs and they keep coming and the S&P 500 topped the 5,000 level for the first time ever. Investors like round numbers and milestones, and they also like momentum, and that's what we're getting. The S&P 500 has hit 10 new highs already this year and has closed higher 14 out of the last 15 weeks. That hasn't happened since 1972 when Roberta Flack was topping the charts with this classic. The first time ever I saw your we are all 70s all the time on this train today. And speaking of looking backwards, the Labor Department on Friday came out with its revisions to inflation data from 2023. And guess what? No revisions to the Consumer Price Index, locking it in with a 3.3% annual rate for last year. That should be encouraging news for the Federal Reserve and all of us interest rate watchers out there, especially when you consider the fact that at this time last year, annual inflation numbers were raised much higher for 2022. The Fed has slayed the inflation dragon and managed to do so without tipping the economy into a recession, at least not yet. And Deutsche Bank, which was the first of the big banks playing the role of Chicken Little in calling for a recession last year, has finally thrown in the towel on that call and no longer believes a recession is in the cards. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one. So no recession, at least for now, low unemployment, stronger than expected corporate profits last quarter, and more and more and more record highs for the stock market. Sounds pretty good. What could go wrong? Anything, really. But here's a couple things that have some folks raising the warning flags. Even though we're witnessing new all-time highs for the S&P 500 on a weekly basis, we've also seen the fewest stocks in the S&P 500 above their 200-day moving average since December and the fewest stocks above their 50-day moving average since November. That's not exactly the broad-based momentum we're looking for, which leads us to that over-concentration in the market that we talk about all the time lately. Six or seven stocks, particularly tech stocks, doing all the heavy lifting. You know who they are. NVIDIA, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, Alphabet, and Netflix. Overconcentration? You betcha. But investors, especially big institutional investors, are not too worried about that as long as these big companies deliver results and returns. And they have. Not just in the past few months or even since October of 2022 when this bull market began, but over the past decade. Since 2014, shares of NVIDIA are up over 19,170%. 
AMD up 4,800%, Microsoft 1,200%, Apple 1,000%, Amazon 870%, Netflix 800%. You get the point. Size matters, and the biggest tech stocks have only gotten bigger. The technology sectors waiting in the S&P 500 recently topped 30% for the first time since September of 2000. Concurrently, the utility sector waiting in the S&P 500 fell to a multi-decade low of 2.17%. Since 1990, the only time the utility sector waiting dipped below that level was in late March 2000 at the peak of the dot-com bubble. Remember why investors like utility stocks after all. They have recurring revenue and they pay big dividends. They play defense, especially during volatile times and bear markets. The dividend payout ratio for utilities as a percentage of earnings is a little over half a percent, according to FactSet, second only to telecom services. The dividend payout ratio for the tech sector, conversely, is less than 0.3%, but that is changing. Meta recently announced its first dividend, as we mentioned last week, and other big tech companies are either joining suit or raising their existing dividends. They are acting like defensive stocks, or at least providing some defense, along with their high-scoring offenses, which means big stocks will probably just get bigger. Which leads us to number two. Size does matter in this current market now more than ever. Take a look at the large cap Russell 1000, a market cap weighted index of the 1000 largest stocks in the US. According to the good folks at Bespoke Investments, the 100 stocks that began 2024 with the lowest share prices fell an average of 7.4% in January, while the 100 stocks with the highest share prices rose an average of 2%. Additionally, the 41 Russell 1000 stocks that began this year with a share price of $500 or more rose 3.2% in January, while the stocks that have a less than $10 share price fell 11%. And number three. And then, that's cut which is the only pipe I use. It costs money. It costs money because it saves money. That's right, Cosmo. There's copper, or Dr. Copper, as we call it in the capital markets. Of all the leading indicators out there that point to the strength or weakness of economic demand and growth, Dr. Copper usually has the right prognosis, and copper futures stop rising back in December. Remember, copper is one of the most useful of the industrial metals, used in everything from heavy machinery to semiconductors. As copper prices started falling, the U.S. dollar started rising. That's a defensive reaction and not something we would expect to see if there was total conviction in this stock market rally. So put it all together. The stock market is rallying despite the fact that most stocks in it are not, the dollar is rising, and copper prices are falling. It's just something to think about as we watch these new highs week after week after week after week. Situational awareness, passengers. This is new territory. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And prices and interest rates are back on the front burner. We're going to get inflation reports for January with the release of the Consumer Price Index and the Producer Price Index this week, as well as retail sales, the Industrial Production Report, and the latest Consumer Sentiment Survey from the University of Michigan. If the inflation rate continues to tick lower, as most people expect it to, the Fed may warm up to those rate cuts in May. Fed Chair Powell told us the central bank is in no hurry to lower rates and needs to see a consistent pattern of lower and lower inflation with no meaningful rise in unemployment. Well, unemployment stayed at 3.7%. We know that. Let's see if prices continue to subside. Earnings season continues, and so far, the results have been better than expected. Surprise, surprise. More than three-quarters of S&P companies have reported results, with about 81% of them reporting earnings above analyst expectations, according to LSEG. That compares to a 67-beat rate in a typical quarter. So yeah, much better than expected and much better than usual. 
This week, we'll hear results from widely held companies, including Coca-Cola, Cisco, Applied Materials, Shopify, Airbnb, DoorDash, and DraftKings. DoorDash and DraftKings had a pretty busy Super Bowl Sunday, but we won't see those results until next quarter. And we get to go whale watching this week. That's right. It's hedge fund reporting season, and we finally get to peek inside the treasure chest of the biggest hedge funds and institutional investors in the world to see what they've been buying and what they've been selling. Something tells me we're going to see a lot of mega cap tech stocks in those portfolios. Two thousand twenty-three may have been the year that AI went mainstream. It permeated every industry, dominated every corporate earnings call, added octane to high-flying tech stocks that leaned into it, like Nvidia, AMD, and so many others. But artificial intelligence, as it's best known, also poses an existential threat to industries, to workers in those industries, and to the future of how we work. But not everyone sees it that way. There are some very smart people who have been at the forefront of thinking about how we can harness AI to make us better at what we do, to improve our productivity, to free us up to do more meaningful and impactful work that translates to a fatter bottom line. Whether you're in sales, retail, hospitality, marketing, financial services, media, you name it, AI used correctly is and will be a transformational technology that will be as big as the internet revolution, as big as the automobile, and yes, as big as the railroad. Sonia Dumas is one of those smart people who've been exploring how AI can be harnessed across industries to help us do better, to make more, and to evolve the way we learn and the way we earn. She's a futurist. She's an AI strategist. She's the co-founder of Campaign Coach AI, which helps companies connect with our target clients. And she's a popular speaker out on the circuit and our very special guest this week on The Express. Welcome. Uh, so glad to be here, Caleb. Good to see you again, my friend. Let's do some mystifying around AI. And first of all, you like to call it accelerated intelligence. Why? Uh, so with AI, within we've all experienced that within a couple of seconds, you ask it a question and it gives you an inordinate amount of information. And so AI, I like to get away from the idea of it's artificial intelligence and it's actually enabling you to make decisions at a microscopic level. And understanding that this accelerated intelligence will help companies to move forward at a faster rate instead of guessing and hoping and waiting for six months of market research, you can find out in minutes what you need to do next. Yeah, and it's all about asking the right question, questions, which we'll get to in a minute. And there's nothing new about AI. You gave a presentation here, we're down at the Southern Living Home Summit. And as you put it, it was kind of born in 2007 when Steve Jobs and Apple gave us the iPhone. Why? <laughs> so you have to think about it. Steve came out and said, this is in a phone, an internet browser, and an iPod. And at that time, prior to then, the phone was really just a place to call. And then they introduced apps. And all of a sudden, AI and the computer and the technology behind it was studying our habits, right? Where we search, how do we search, how do we interact online, where do we go? And all that information tells a lot about human behavior. And if you're in sales and marketing, what you do is always about following and understanding human behavior. What's the psychology behind it? And at that point, it was pretty nebulous. You really didn't know. But with the iPhone, every tap, every click, would lead the machine to understand this is what's important to people. This is what, not just people in general, this is what you like. And if you like it and billions of other people do the same thing, now you're able to target in a way that didn't really exist prior to the iPhone. Yeah, there's a reason they use that like button. Now mm -hmm. I understand it. All right. Then the great financial crisis came around, 2007, 2008, 2009, and the aftermath, that really gave it more octane. Why? 
I say give it more octane because when you're in extremely emotional environments, right? So 2008 was extremely emotional for the the markets, right? It was what they call it the great financial crisis. The banks were imploding. The real estate market was imploding. And guess what? All of that emotion got translated across social media, got translated into the the, um, news media and articles. And we all started to communicate what was important to us. What do we do when we're fearful? We, We seek for security. And that information, that emotional information that was fed in 2008 onwards helped AI to understand who we are as human beings. And then that data, there's there's a good and the evil side that that data can be harnessed to be able to um, have a company show up and produce a product that says, this is what security can look like or feel like for you. That's kind of scary, but it's also kind of fun. Very scary. And we got so much data out of the great financial crisis on Investopedia because a lot of people were coming to us looking for how to explain what a mortgage-backed security is. What is a credit default swap? Why is it impacting me that we developed the anxiety index, which measures the anxiety <laughs> levels people have when they're searching for certain terms. So the great financial crisis, plus the iPhone, all these apps and the internet, well, that gives you a lot of data. So you have some other translations of AI and how we can use it. I heard you give this in a presentation, amplifying influence, adaptive innovation, accelerating income. AI could mean a lot of things. Uh-huh. And I like all of these better than artificial intelligence because there's nothing artificial about it. No, not at all. It's at the end of the day, just because a computer is trying to figure out what the next word is to say, it's all based on what we have given it. So it's reacting to our, our emotions, our behaviors, our words, our lifestyles. It's reacting to that. And, you know, without getting too technical, it's almost like it's putting together a, a predictability of, well, I know all of this about a specific segment, so this is likely what's to happen, or this is likely where they're going to head. And so AI is, I, I say it's great about being able to give us some direction, but ultimately that human being at the end of the day has to make the final decision on where to steer the ship. Yeah, absolutely. So we're at a home builders conference at Southern Living with our partners here. We're talking to builders and developers. It's hard to imagine AI taking the job of a builder or developer since those are really relationship-based businesses, right? You have to have trust with your clients. You have to have uh, vendors that you can trust. But how can, say, like a builder or a developer use AI to be better at what they do? So, you know, there's uh, there's two roads I take with AI and there's the, uh, and I spoke about this, there's the productivity road and then there's a revenue road. So let's talk about AI and productivity. So if you're a builder, a developer, you know, one of the highest priorities for your clients is budget. So be, having AI be able to predict, and there's, there's already AI for larger corporations where it can predict raw materials, it can predict labor shortages and pricing. And so being able to then give your clients a dynamic bid or a dynamic quote to say, look, this home that you want to build, well, one, it's going to take 14 months. Two, according to AI, your price is going to range about 14%. But if you wait past these next three months, it may be 18 to 20%. And so AI being able to predict the unpredictable, the uncertainty, like you think about your business, where are the, um, the points of uncertainty? And ask yourself, how can AI help to give me faster, more predictive, almost like futuristic or forecasting information based on now all this real-time data, especially across, you know, social media is like one of the most amazing places to get real-time data that's even faster than the government, right? Like, you know, Fed looks, what, six months back? And, you know, with AI, it's like real-time. So you can get real-time temperature 
temperature, whether it's on your market, your customers, uh, your industry in a way that didn't really exist two or three years ago, at least not at the everyday level. Uh, one of the things I mentioned to the home builders is that this is a multi-billion dollar piece of technology that now sits as an app on your phone that you can tap into. Absolutely incredible. And it really crosses so many industries. In fact, you were telling us that there is an AI for that. There's an app where you can actually search for the AI app that is appropriate for your business. So let's take this over to my world a little bit to financial planning, financial advice, uh, and the people that interact with Investopedia. How can my financial advisor, for example, serve me better and grow her business more using AI? So one of the first things I love to use about AI when you're thinking about your target client, right? And some of you may call them like leads or prospects, but I always like to say, let's switch the language and start thinking about people in terms of who's my target client. You can go to AI because it has over 24 years of human history. It knows about every job title. It has an, a, a good idea about like lifestyle and what people are into. You can type up the demographic and you can type up information about your target clients and AI AI can feed back to you some of their desires, what are their motivations, what are their fears, what are their doubts, what are their questions when they maybe want to switch financial advisors or they're looking for one. You can think about, you know, AI can give you uh, information about their position, like, you know, being a financial advisor to a CEO of a, you know, multi-million dollar company versus being a financial advisor to a CEO of a, you know, small local business little bit of a different dynamic there, right? And so AI can give you specifics about that client. And then you're able to then start to proactively answer those questions and proactively show up in a way that will create security. Because it's interesting when you start to, when you have to build a relationship with someone, um, especially at a business level, security and trust are so high, especially nowadays, right? There's there's a hustle around every corner. And so when you want to build that relationship, being able to create trust and security comes down to showing one, you understand their world. And AI can help you understand someone's world literally in less than 10 minutes. Yeah. But it's all about getting to what you point out are the desires, the motivations, and the aspirations, which is another way of saying, you got to ask the right questions. Right. And that means you have to know your market, know your customer base, know what you're going for, and then tap into the desires, motivations, aspirations. How do those play into using AI the right way? So, so it's interesting. Yes, you can use AI to, you know, write emails for you. But I look at it at, at the end of the day, like, let's circle back. You used one of my um, acronyms. AI stands for accelerated income. At some point, it is about the money. Right. These companies aren't multi-billion dollar valuations, million dollar valuations, just because it's just a nice thing to do. And so when you think about your target client, asking AI to show you where their mindset is, what drives them. Now, AI is not going to give you everything. And so don't necessarily think that AI is going to just make it easy for you to just copy and paste, but it's going to give you some clarity. So that way, when you show up, show up on social or you show up to a meeting or you're doing an introduction, you're able to speak with uh, such clarity in your words, in your tonality and how you show up versus everybody else that's also called advisor. You'll, you'll sound different, you'll look different, and you'll be able to communicate very much at a, even a subtle level that you get it, you understand them, and you start to ask better questions. And it's interesting how when you deal with a certain level of, of uh, success and accomplishment, the better questions that you ask, the more it shows that you are strategic and you are methodical about 
moving towards success versus just guesstimating on a whim, got a good gut feeling. Like AI is going to empower you to be able to speak with a level of confidence that says, look, we're using this technology to be able to do a lot of predicting and forecasting. And guess what? It's in your best interest. And I actually have your back because when something goes wrong, no one's going to call AI. They're going to call you. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's not as if the machine is doing the investing for me no. or helping me pick the insurance plan, but it is uh-huh. doing the data, uh, yes. the data compilation to say, based on who you are, where mm-hmm. you're going, your goals, your life plan, these are the best products that might service you better. Great use of AI. All right. You're a futurist. Fast forward a decade from now. How is AI going to touch every aspect of our life when we're looking out at 2034, if I make it that far? <laughs> of course you will. <laughs> So here's the thing. I look at it as life will be seamless in the sense of think of all the things you rush around doing, the small, mundane, tedious, but important things, right? Whether it's, you know, laundry and temperature and booking flights and just really figuring out the things to get to a destination or to get to your goal. What happens if you don't have to think about those things anymore? You can just say, Siri, Alexa, Clarity, book a flight. I'm trying to go here, you know my preferences, and then flights booked, hotels booked, and, and we made sure to tell them extra pillows and on the fourth floor, like things that we, we have to do from just an everyday living, that gets removed. And I think that's scary for some people because they live their lives just busy running around doing all the things. But what happens if you don't have to do all the busy work? And now you have more time to really focus on what you do best whether it's writing or studying or, or uh, researching, whether it's painting and cooking, what happens when all of your time can now be spent on your true passions, your creativity, you know, what your true talents are for the world? I think that makes some people a little bit nervous and afraid because maybe they haven't been doing those things or maybe they don't know what they would do, right? Like, well, oh my gosh, I have all this time. I don't have to do all this busy work. And so I think life will be very seamless and everything that we want will naturally exist in the environment. But it also will mean that those who truly tap into their talents and gifts, I think will thrive a lot better than, unfortunately, the individuals who are more task-based, right? I I need to go do these things. Well, well, there's an AI app for that, or AI is already doing it, or the robots are already doing that. So then what value do you add? And you have to now, I think what AI will do is force people to look at the talents and skills that they have that AI can't do. And that's sometimes a bit of a, that's an introspection that can open up a very dark closet. Absolutely. That's going to be a, a time of really looking in and saying, what, what am I here for? And what am I best suited to do if I had the time to do it? We always ask ourselves that, yes. but then we always find something to do. Uh-huh. We will get to a point where all those things to do, like what I was doing today, booking a flight for a business trip, booking the hotel, all of those uh, things I uh-huh. did this morning took me like 25 minutes, no big deal, but what else would I have done? Right, but Maybe, how many times do you do that a year? Uh, I did it three times this week. So there uh-huh. you go, to your point. <laughs> now, we, we know about the biggest companies that are making the biggest investments in AI, and we've watched their stock prices go bananas because of it. I'm talking about the NVIDIAs of the world, obviously, the Palantirs, but even Amazon, Apple, the biggest companies making the biggest investments in the technology that will have the biggest impact on their product and also on their bottom lines going forward. But what companies have not gone mainstream yet that might be at the forefront of this in the next couple of years? Oh my gosh, that has not gone mainstream. I mean, if you're, you know, following Anthropic for sure, it's, uh, you know, I mentioned Claude AI and most people are like, who? 
It's like, yeah, follow them. Um, you know, I look at it as, you know, especially with what OpenAI stand, started with, with chat GPT and it's a large language model, but I look at it as like kind of Google search engine. So think about what Google did to search engines, right? To the Netscapes and the AOLs, depending on how far back you want to go. It changed the way that everyone searched to the point that people started saying, just Google it, right? Now we're in a space where people are starting to say, just AI it. But who's the AI? Is it Bing? Is it Bard? Is it Claude? And so I would look high level at the ones that are really capturing the most market share. So I don't really have a favorite one or a, here's one that's under the, uh, under the radar, I look at it from a Google standpoint of follow what is capturing the most market share. Where are developers building? On what type of engines? Is it Bard? Is it Claude? Is it OpenAI? Because they're going to command the most developers and where the developers go, the consumers go. So if all the developers for, I'm just saying, for example, if they go to OpenAI and they're building these amazing applications, then you're going to find some of those moonshot unicorns built on top of it. it. Almost reminds me of crypto, right? Where there was Bitcoin, then Ethereum came along and Ethereum's the number one, you know, altcoin because all the developers started building these other coins on top of it or these other protocols. And so in the same way, see who's building um, on top of these larger models. And then those are, you're going to find some interesting unicorns there. Yeah. Great call. And also, follow the money because the VC yes. money is behind some of these companies you might not have heard of yet, but we talked about it a few episodes, folks. We talked about Anthropic and all these companies that Amazon and Apple and Alphabet are putting tens of billions of dollars behind. They are not silly with their money. So keep an eye on that. So how do you stay on top of all of this? You're a futurist. We were talking years ago about crypto custodianship, and now it's a real thing, but I consider you somebody who's sort of looking out beyond the next two or three waves. How are you staying on top of it? What are you reading? What do you recommend? You know, I, <laughs> it's interesting. I actually go to AI to, <laughs> to ask. So I go to a chat GPT-4 and just ask it. I really ask it like at least once a week, what's new that I need to know? And notice how I'm not going to Google. I'm not necessarily going to YouTube because there, it's interesting. The market's so hyped about just anything that has the, the term AI in it that you get a lot of kind of gimmicky stuff. Like there's a lot of gimmicks out there. But when you ask AI, what's it paying attention to? Remember, this is a multi-billion dollar piece of technology. So it'll let you know that, hey, here's some, here some recommendations of what's happening with me. Like ask AI, how have you grown today? What do you know? <laughs> like instead of asking the world that everyone's using it, I'm like, I'm going to ask AI because it's growing and learning. So I asked it to tell me, what, are you, what have you learned? What do you know? What should I be paying attention to about your development? Yeah, well, that is so meta and not in a Facebook kind of meta, uh -huh. but in a meta meta type of way. And folks, if you don't want to do that, you can follow Sonia. She will uh, point you in the right direction. <laughs> All right. You know we're a website built on our financial dictionary, our financial terms, our investing terms. You're a futurist, so I'm going to leave it wide open for you. What is your favorite term and why? You know, I'm in this space right now that my favorite term is cash flow. We love it. The reason for that is because ultimately, especially technology, it's about not only the flow of information, but it's information moving at the speed of light. And that level of flow has a monetary component to it. And there are countless businesses out there that you may not be a multi-billion dollar tech company, but that flow, some of it can make it to you. And figuring out the strategy and the equation to say, how can some of that, think of it like Niagara Falls, right? Like I can't stand under it, but if I can create a channel that filters into my life 
and the life of my community and things that are important to me. Like, let's tap into that. And, you know, I look at also what AI is doing is even in my own productivity in life, I'm in my flow zone a lot more than prior to AI. Prior to AI, it was like, okay, I would have two hours of creative time that I get into the zone, but up, oh, got to switch gears and do all the booking and the flights and, and just the everyday life things. I'm doing less of that. And I have more time for the flow zone. And I know that when I'm in the flow zone, it benefits clients. And when clients are benefited, guess what? That's cash flow in my life. That's cash flow in your life. Yeah, cash flow all day long. We love that term. And that's a great way to apply it. Sonia Duma, an AI strategist, the co-founder of Campaign Coach AI, a futurist and a good friend to Investopedia. So good to have you on The Express. I loved it. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing in finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term is brought to us by the hedge fund industry. Why? Because it's that time of year when we get to look inside their filing cabinets and get a peek at their Form 13Fs. It's a term and an SEC form all in one, the Form 13F. According to the greatest investing education website on the planet, the SEC's Form 13F is a quarterly report that is required to be filed by all institutional investment managers with at least $100 million in assets under management. It discloses their equity holdings and can provide insights into what these whales are buying, what they're selling, and what they're holding. Managers of these funds are required to file Form 13F within 45 days after the last day of the calendar quarter. Most funds wait until the end of this period in order to conceal their investment strategy from competitors and the public like us. And that's why we're going to be getting a lot of them this week. Congress created the 13F requirement in 1975. Its intention was to provide the U.S. public with a view of the holdings of the nation's largest institutional investors, and they believe, lawmakers, that this would increase investor confidence in the integrity of the nation's financial markets. Let's see about that. And how are these hedge funds doing, by the way? Well, the 20 best performing hedge funds last year made $67 billion in gains. That's triple what they reported in 2022, according to LCH Investments, which ranks the top 20 firms on their gains and their fees. At the top of the winner's list was TCI, an activist hedge fund run by the financier Christopher Hone that reported a $12.9 billion net gain. Other top performers last year include Citadel, D.E. Shaw, Millennium, and Elliott Management. Congrats to them. Fleece vests for everybody. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Sonia Duma for climbing aboard the Express. When I saw her speak at the Southern Living Home Summit last week about AI and the real estate world, I knew I had to share her smarts with you. She's way ahead of the curve, so follow her work on LinkedIn. We'll share her profile in the show notes, along with all the other reports we cited on this week's episode. Get those wherever you ride the Express, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.